Chapter 3 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. The bearing of a new name and the wearing of a ring made very little alteration in my mode of life or in the manner in which I occupied my time. I resumed my studies almost immediately. Mr. Mollett himself instructed me in French and in the higher branches of English. I took music and singing lessons three times a week, and only abandoned drawing because a stooping position was found injurious to my health. In this latter accomplishment, several of my father's children had shown a marked proficiency, which none had exhibited in music, and I laid aside my pencils with regret. I was excessively fond of the country, and early in the spring Mr. Mawat took me to reside in Flatbush, Long Island. The house in which we boarded was a large, old-fashioned mansion, built before the Revolution, and had belonged to General Giles. There were dark and spacious vaults beneath the kitchens, where it was said that English prisoners had been confined, and there was a secret chamber above the great ballroom, to which no access could be found save by a small window. The neighbors affirmed that a young girl had been purposely starved to death in that chamber, and that her ghost wandered at night about in the house. Indeed, this report had gained such credence that nothing could have induced many of the older inhabitants of the village to pass a night beneath the haunted roof. The house stood back from the main road, embowered by magnificent old trees. The property consisted of twenty acres of land, in a high state of cultivation. I became so much attached to this place that Mr. Mawat purchased it for my gratification, stipulating, however, that I should content myself in passing the greater portion of the year in the country. I gladly consented. The house was repaired and refurnished. The gardens and orchard enlarged and planted with an innumerable variety of fruit trees and flowers. A greenhouse built, a long arbor erected, where I could walk at midday, quite shaded from the sun, and a summer house reared in its center, in which I could sit and write or study. I had numberless pets, birds, dogs, pigeons, rabbits, a goat and kid, and a beautiful Arabian mare for my own especial use. We named her Queen Mab. At sixteen years old, I found myself the mistress of this mansion, without a wish ungratified. After a time, my father kindly allowed a dear and gentle sister, some four years younger, to reside with me, that I might not be lonely. My time was occupied in studying, taking care of my pets, riding about the country, and instructing my sister May in whatever I learned myself, French, Spanish, music, etc. Brilliantly happy were the days we passed together. We neither ceased to be children nor gave up our childish sports. Our morning amusements were trundling a couple of huge hoops through our favorite arbor, dancing with the skipping rope, or floating round the flying course, which had been erected to promote our healthful exercise. Sometimes we ordered ladders to be placed by the cherry trees loaded down with fruit, 
and spent our mornings in the branches, gathering cherries, and reading when we retired. An easy saddle horse was placed at my sister's disposal, and we took long rides together, accompanied by the gardener or the coachman, Mr. Mawit not being fond of the exercise. We also had a commodious carriage and a fine pair of coach horses, but May and I preferred horseback exercise. Driving seemed too quiet an amusement for our exuberant spirits. From every book which I read, I made extracts and wrote down my impressions of the work. These extracts and critiques I kept in the form of a journal. During several years, this journal testified that I had read and commented upon between 90 and 100 volumes yearly. Every possible means was taken to strengthen my constitution through abundance of exercise and thus to ward off the illness to which I was subject. For this purpose, Mr. Mawat taught me the use of the gun. He was himself an admirable sportsman. I had many fears and some scruples to conquer, but after a time I took aim so accurately that I could shoot swallows on the wing. Many and many a morning, with a light single-barrel gun on my shoulder, dressed in half-Turkish costume, and followed by our dogs, I rambled with him for miles through the woods, filling the game bag which hung at my waist with birds of both our shooting. It now appears to me a cruel pastime, and birds no longer stand within my danger. But in those days I seldom saw with my own eyes, or judged with my own judgment. The first real sorrow I ever knew fell upon my heart as I stood beside the deathbed of our mother. She was summoned away within a year after my marriage. For a time it seemed as though all I prized on earth had gone with her. Her last hours were ever present to me. The couch where she lay, surrounded by her weeping children and their father, her exquisitely chiseled feature, perfect in their beauty, becoming more and more marble-like as her breath grew fainter, her transparent hands that lay passively in ours, her glazing eyes, which, just as she breathed her last, beamed with a sudden look of intelligence that fell upon her youngest child, Uya, and the seraphic smile that settled upon her countenance when the last pang was over and the angel bore her spirit away. Sleeping or waking, these were ever before my eyes. My pen lingers while I write of her, but what she was no pen can truly describe, a being indeed all dipped in angel instincts, breathing paradise. Happy he with such a mother, faith in womankind beats with his blood, and trust in all things high comes easy to him. We gave to our place the name of Melrose, not from any likeness that it bore to Melrose Abbey, but on account of the abundance of roses of every description that filled our greenhouses and were scattered over the ground. There was an Episcopal church in the village which we attended, and May and I contributed our services as Sunday school teachers. In our little classes we took the deepest interest. Then there were two fairs for the benefit of the church, 
held upon the magnificent grounds of Mr. C. My sisters presided at a table filled with our own work. Little Julia sold flowers and recited poems. I was constituted a fortune-teller. They erected for me a bower formed of branches of evergreens. Over the entrance, in letters made of flowers, were the words, Temple of Fate. Within was a large wheel of blue and gold, covered with numbers. Beside the wheel, somewhat fantastically dressed, I stood, with a golden wand in one hand and the Book of Fate in the other. I had written fortunes in verse and adapted them to the histories of certain persons who, I was sure, would be present. By pressing the wand skillfully upon the wheel as it turned, I could stop it at what number I pleased, and thus I created great amusement by the happy hits directed at those who sought to learn their destiny. The Temple of Fate proved highly productive to the interests of the church. My fondness for rhyming continued undiminished. I was tired of fugitive pieces and determined to write a poem of some length. What subject would I choose? I was reading, with great avidity, Schlegel's Lectures on Literature. Schlegel remarks that poetry's original end and highest grade he believes to be epic. I would write an epic poem. I chose a subject from Spanish history and was soon thoroughly engrossed with my new and, to me, delightful occupation. In the evenings, I amused myself by reading aloud to Mr. Mollett what I had composed in the morning. I wrote with juvenile rapidity and had not yet learned the great art of blotting. In a few months, the poem was completed. It was entitled Palayo, or The Caverns of Covadonga, a poetical romance in five cantos, founded on the history of the first king of Asturias. Mr. Mawat, of course, listened with partial ears, and I believe I had a way of making versification sound more musical than it was, of creating a sense through certain modulations of voice which did not exist in the words themselves. He proposed that Palayo should be published. The idea startled me. I was not then ambitious. I had thought more of feeding birds and taming pigeons than of winning fame. I loved to think that I possessed a household harp that would make pleasant music for the ears of kindred and friends, but I shrank from playing my part of imperfect musician before the world. Yet I was easily persuaded. The authorship of Palayo was to be kept a profound secret. I assumed the name of Isabel, and the book was published by the Harpers. Its existence was as ephemeral as it deserved to be, as readily exterminated by the critics as a butterfly could be crushed, it died an easy death. I alone suffered in its expiring agonies. The roseate veil of maternal love which shrouds the eyes of most young writers when they look at their own productions had not yet fallen from mine. 
I considered myself a very injured individual, a sort of literary martyr, and I assumed a Spartan courage in bearing my wrongs, which must have been particularly ridiculous. Years afterward, I found an old copy of Palayo and read a few lines. Very few they were, for I closed the book in mortified astonishment that I could ever have written such unmitigated stuff. Nor could I comprehend how the blindest affection could have allowed me to render it public. The preface to Palayo contained a bombastic threat that I would reply to any attacks made upon the book. I hurled a Lilliputian defiance at the giant critics. They were forewarned that I was prepared to defend my poetical offspring to the death. Byron's English bards and Scotch reviewers was probably running in my head, for from the ashes of Palio sprang up a satire, and I use the word because it is on the title page, entitled Reviewers Reviewed. The title is sufficiently explanatory in setting forth the object of the book. The following extract from the preface betrays the impetuous spirit in which it was written. Palayo, the first rude effusion of a warm, though untutored heart, was presented to the public with all the rainbow hope, that unmingled buoyancy which ever attends the joyous visions of expectant youth, I studied not the science of poetry, I heeded not its rules. In the enthusiasm of the moment, I felt only that nature formed her poets before nature's scorners shackled them with their modern trammels. Little did I dream, while tracing the carelessly light-toned preface of Palayo, of that literary ordeal to which it was offered, and in some unfortunate allusion to critics, my imagination scarcely painting them as other than ideal beings, I naturally gave vent to the playful exuberance of spirit which might have amused a circle of my own friends. But if I hoped to find amongst the wrath-dispensing race a friend, if I thought to ward off or beguile the tempestuous hurricane of critic censure, I but experienced the same disappointment thousands have before encountered, thousands must meet again. The most inoffensive bandage was interpreted into scorn and excuses for my conscientious deficiency translated into self-esteem. Had a just, even though severe, criticism been awarded me, had they quoted one line of mine and displayed its excessive faultiness, had they used my own language and proved its absurdity, had they shown how egregiously false was my versification, how imperfect my rhymes, or from whence my ideas were stolen, for of all these negligences and ignorances they bestowed on me a bountiful share, I would have submitted, a thankfully, to the scourge which brought improvement with its sting, but, on the contrary, they gathered from the preface that Palayo was written at the early age of sixteen, that proper attention had not been devoted to its revision, and that I myself was conscious of its innumerable defects, and without further examination they made the above sweeping allegations. 
I do not, cannot deny their truth. I am at variance only with the spirit that dictated them, and their want of demonstrative proof. Another objection was urged against Palaio, which, not from me alone, but from the lips and soul of every patriotic American, demands reply, namely, the extreme folly of publishing poetry when its age was on the wane. In the old world, where the muse's glory has reached its meridian height, her power may well decline. But are not we of the new world, and shines she here, or has she ever shone in full maturity and splendor, arrayed in laurels from which time has plucked no leaf? How revolting to our national pride, how humiliating, to believe that America should only produce a sickly poetry fire, expiring at its birth. Can poetry be on the wane while such men as Hollock and Bryant are in their prime? Though its infant pinions yet are weak, may they not one day soar beyond even proud Albion's constellated host of bards? One word in extenuation of the above extract. I was hardly eighteen when it was published. Reviewers reviewed attracted some attention, the book had a larger sale than Palaio, and was now and then favorably noticed, probably through the sympathy of some critic who had himself been lashed by his contemporaries. I wrote no more under the signature of Isabel. My greatest desire now was to preserve my incognita. I did not suppose it possible for the day ever to come when I should confess with perfect sang-froid the youthful indiscretion of perpetrating such books as Palaio and reviewers reviewed, as a child weeps over the fall of its card houses, so I mourned over the demolition of my first poetic castles, but cherishing the conciliatory hope that mansions of after years would have surer foundation. We still resided at Melrose. Occasionally, I visited my family and friends in New York. Now and then we attended the theater and other places of amusement, but my principal delight was in receiving guests at home. We gave numerous fetes, but never mere dancing parties. They were either of a poetic, musical, or dramatic character. One of these, and the most worthy of mention, was in celebration of my seventeenth birthday. Four of my friends had offered to write me birthday poems and recite them in the evening after our guests were assembled. Without hinting my intention, I determined to surprise them with versified replies, though, of course, I could only guess at the subject matter of their effusions. I passed a happy day in decking the house with garlands and robbing our own and our neighbors' greenhouses of all the flowers that they could yield. In a little rustic basket, covered with geranium leaves, lay four exquisite bouquets. To each bouquet was attached a tiny scroll. These were designed for the four poets. The scroll contained the verses addressed to the different parties. Evening brought a merry throng of guests. 
after refreshments and some exquisite music from a friend who never failed me an armchair was drawn into the center of the room by mr l the chief of my birthday poets he advanced to lead me to my temporary throne but declining his hand i stole out of the room and before he had recovered from his surprise at the apparent rudeness returned with my basket of bouquets i took the vacant seat the four minstrels gathered around me and mr l commenced reciting a very beautiful original poem which was listened to with breathless attention at the line and thus we crown thee cora queen he drew forth a concealed wreath of natural flowers made in the form of a regal crown and placed it on my head for this coronation i was quite unprepared when he ceased to speak the applause and the congratulation of the company expressed their delight ungracious as it seemed i sat perfectly still until the silence was restored then selecting the bouquet or breast-knot rather which i had prepared for him uttered my thanks in verse and presented the flowers the general surprise may well be imagined the three poetesses then addressed me in turn and as each one finished i replied presenting the bouquets and scrolls the rustic basket was not yet quite emptied there remained another paper of plain white folded like a letter is that for me is that for me asked many an eager voice as i broke the seal and prepared to read when the curiosity of the company reached its highest pitch i read aloud the name of one person present who i was sure least expected that he had been made the subject of a poem a plain kind-hearted merry old gentleman of the ancient school the oldest truest most attached friend of mr mollet how he started from his seat when he heard the words to j h one might have thought a leaden and not a paper bullet had entered his ears the poem was read and presented and praised and long life was wished to the queen and many another such birthday the music recommenced and we chased the rosy hours with flying feet so passed my seventeenth birthday almost every week my sister may and i with the assistance of little julia who made us frequent visits got up some rural entertainment principally for our own amusement and that of mr mallet who invited his friends or not just as he felt disposed very often he formed our sole audience we dignified these entertainments by the name of concerts and always had written programs of the performance the songs were intermingled with recitations and scenes from tragedies music was one of our chief studies but with the fullest appreciation of its beauties we were devoid of any decided musical talent i except little julia who had a naturally good ear and sweet voice 
I also possessed a voice which my teachers pronounced more than ordinarily fine, but I had a faulty ear, and the slightest trepidation made me sing false. For years I labored to conquer this defect, but I never could learn to sing before strangers to my own satisfaction, perhaps, I should add, to theirs. Besides our weekly burlesque concerts, we frequently prepared exhibitions of tableau vivant for our friends which were eminently successful. Then we several times enacted for different assemblages of guests an original play. This was my first positive attempt at a dramatist. It was called The Gypsy Wanderer or The Stolen Child, an operetta dedicated to my sister Julia. The play, or dramatic sketch, was written in blank verse, and interspersed with numerous songs. Little Julia was, of course, the heroine. As our corps dramatique consisted of but three, it required some ingenuity to invent a play, the interest of which should be sustained by three characters. The plot was very simple, and yet proved effective in acting. I personated Lady Ivon a broken-hearted young widow, whose infant child had been stolen some years previously by gypsies. My sister May enacted Lucille, the niece and confidant of Lady Ivon. Little Julia was Florette, the stolen child. The scene opens with Lady Ivon and Lucille. Lucille induces Lady Ivon to relate the history of her sorrows, through which means the audience is, of course, apprised of them. Suddenly their conversation is interrupted by the voice of a gypsy child singing without who begs for charity in her song. Lucille desires to turn her from the doors on account of her obnoxious race. Lady Ivon objects. The little florette enters, dressed as a gypsy, with a bundle of small brooms slung over her shoulders, a bunch of lavender in one hand, and a basket of flowers in the other. The ladies question her, and she answers with snatches of old ballads, now with, Over the mountain and over the moor, hungry and weary, I wander forlorn. My father is dead, my mother is poor, and I mourn for days that will never return. And then with, Buy a broom, presenting her tiny brooms, or with Come by my lavender, distributing her lavender. Lady Ivon, of course, traces a likeness between this child and the one she lost, and is greatly agitated. The little florette makes known all she can remember of herself, and Lucille discovers a mystical circlet bound over her arm. Florette entreats that this may not be removed. It is a charm placed there by a gypsy prophetess of her tribe, and she has been warned that evil will befall her should it ever be loosened. Of course, her prayers are unheeded. The band is hastily torn away. It concealed a natural mark by means of which Lady Ivon recognizes her child, and the dramatic sketch ends in a tableau. Its representation occupied an hour and a half. About this period, I began to write fugitive pieces which were published in various magazines under the signature of Cora. The first to which I allowed this my own name to be attached was a bridal address to my sister Emma. 
when the bride and bridegroom after the ceremony returned from the church to our father's house little julia came forward and greeted them with this address her delivery and not the poem itself produced a deep impression dr h who had officiated was much moved and his were not the only eyes unused to weep that found themselves involuntarily moistened by the pathetic tones and earnest delivery of a child of eight years old while my little pupil was speaking i scanned the countenances of those around and what i read there gave me more intense delight than ever did even in after years the most enthusiastic applause that pealed in my ears my health had been for some time failing i was no longer allowed to study i was forbidden to write physicians pronounced me consumptive and recommended a sea voyage my newly married sister and her husband were about to visit europe it was arranged that i and an aunt to whom i was warmly attached should accompany them mr mawitt's professional engagements prevented his leaving new york the first parting from home and the loved ones left behind was naturally a severe trial had i been less seriously indisposed i should have rebelled at the banishment but excessive weakness enabled me to bid farewell with a tearless eye and a sensation of icy calmness which even the passionate grief of my beloved companion my sweet sister may could not disturb in a poem written in third person composed on board of the ship descriptive of the parting the following lines occur in allusion to this sister they portray the closeness of our union she for many moons had been the loved companion of her lonely hours they dwelt together from the self-same page had read laughed gaily o'er the same light tales sang the same songs or strove perchance to sing for each had more of music in her soul and harmony in her love than melody upon her lips arms softly linked in arm each sunny morn had they strolled lovingly forth to take unmarked their pleasant rambles through the little village where the elder dwelt and where the younger felt her home to be we sailed in the ship roscus under the command of captain collins i remained very ill for the first two weeks but before the voyage was completed began to make rapid strides towards health my cough had nearly disappeared and i was more free from suffering than i had been for months previous we reached liverpool in three weeks and hasten to London. End of chapter 3